Let's turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. I just want to read a scripture this morning. We're going to continue in our series on the church called All In. But we're talking about the church, All In. What does it mean to be not only a part of the church, but more specifically, what does being a part of Grace Church look like? And so uh, we've been doing this for a couple weeks, and today and two more weeks we'll continue. And today and in these next two weeks, I'm going to concentrate on three, what I would call three values uh, concerning what it, w- what it looks like to be all in at Grace Church, or any church really, but specifically Grace Church. And uh, we're going to look at that a little bit. Just remind you, once we're done with this series, uh, on the uh, Sunday the 12th, which is also time change Sunday, you spring forward, that's the one we don't like, uh, we lose that hour of sleep, but that Sunday is going to be a great day, the Mark Dubell family will be here, they'll have the entire uh, morning service, uh, they're a wonderful uh, gospel singing family, they've been here a few times, but they'll have the entire morning of uh, leading us in music and worship. And then following, we're going to have a dinner on the grounds outside. We'll have a tent out there, and I think uh, the order has been made for some ribs and chicken, and it'll be good stuff. And uh, so, uh, uh, see, that excites some folks. You're talking about food. Food, we like that. So, uh, but, uh, so good things ahead. But look in your Bibles. just want to read a, a scripture, and I uh, may refer to it again later. And this is uh, in John chapter 4. In the context of Jesus at the well where he came and rested and met a Samaritan woman. And if you know a little bit about uh, Bible uh, history, you know that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Uh, and there's a whole reasoning they had behind that. So the fact that she was a woman and a Samaritan in this culture in and itself was a bit uh, unique. And there's teaching around that that shows how Jesus uh, connects uh, with with outcasts, at least what was considered outcasts in that culture. And, uh, of course, he began to talk with her. Remember, she wanted, uh, uh, he asked her for a drink, and, you know, the water, he was thirsty, he was tired, shows our, the humanity of Christ. And kind of looking down to around verse 14, uh, he mentions about, uh, go call your husband, and she says, you know, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, because she was a woman who had been in a lot of different relationships, Okay. And then as soon as Jesus put his finger, have you ever found this to be the case? Is that whatever Jesus puts his finger on a sin or an error in our life, we want to change the subject, right? We, we just, and so as soon as Jesus began to talk about, go call your husband, and she didn't really have a husband. She was, you know, on her third, fourth, fifth relationship. She wanted to talk about religion. You ever talk to folks like that? You begin to talk to them, and they say, well, where did Adam get his, you know, or, or you know, uh, uh, who, who uh, his children, or they want to ask some complex uh, question. And Jesus says, or she asked this question to Jesus, verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She had concerns about worship, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That's what the Jews said that Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, look at this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. 
as a Samaritan, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that having your revealed word is to our lives, that we don't have to guess in what your purpose and will is for us, that you have given us a book, you have given us words handed down and developed through history by men and women anointed by God, Lord, that have enabled us to have a book that shows and teaches us who you are and what your design is for our life and our church. And so, Lord, I pray that today the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, Lord, as I stand here today and under the awesome privilege and opportunity to open your word and share it with your flock and help us all by your Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us and conform us to Jesus I pray in his name, and everybody said, amen. Well, today I'm going to introduce you. I shouldn't say introduce you as if it's some, something new. It's not. But the first word that I want to kind of put out there, there's going to be three of these, and I'll tell you, go ahead and put the first one today, is the word celebrate, and we're going to talk about worship this morning, okay? Uh, when I talk about celebrate, we're talking about what we do here is a celebration. We are here not for a funeral. We're not here for uh, a, a lecture. We are here as the gathered people of God to worship. Uh, we gather together as God's church to glorify God through worship and to encourage one another. You notice that little uh, arrows that I put up there just as a visual. And that slide, that's the only one that's going to be up the whole time. I just want that to kind of burn in your head, this word celebrate. And in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the word uh, uh, connect, and that has to do with relationships. And then the third week, or in the last Sunday, is the word commit, that I want to, the church, to be a part of the church, to be all in as the church, is that I commit myself to using my gifts for the outreach and the great commission and the purposes of God. But today we're talking about worship and to use it in these three C's. The first word there is celebrate. It's interesting that, how many of you remember the story of when David, uh, the famous story of when David danced? Remember that? He kind of slimmed down into his, well, we won't say whether. Anyway, he, he danced, right? And he worshiped the Lord through dance. And what's interesting, that's over, in, and we're not going to look at it, but I just pointed out, because I love this, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, two different times the Hebrew word is used for celebrate, and it comes from the root meaning to laugh. Now, you wouldn't know that going in some churches, would you? That the celebration together is joyful. God has made us and created us to be a joyful people. Anybody want me to turn on my timer? I'll just leave it, leave it at three hours there, all right? <clears throat> but we are a joyful people. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And I just love the fact that here was David celebrating, worshiping to the Lord. He did, he had, there was a certain abandonment that he had and how he was celebrating who God was and what God had done in his life and how that word comes or is developed through 
to laugh. Our God wants his people to be filled with a holy joy of his presence. Some of you had maybe grown up in a Presbyterian background where you're familiar with what is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and there's the Westminster Longer Catechism. And, and don't ever get so religious you say, oh, creeds and all those things are unspiritual. No, they're not. They're, they're done to teach great truths and doctrine. We don't worship them. They're not the Bible, but they are tools to teach us uh, and uh, often referred to as catechisms. And I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins, and it's a question-and-answer teaching format of what a catechism is. And the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end, mankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I love that. How do we enjoy God? We glorify God. And by glorifying God, we are joyful and we receive joy. That's a great concept. It'd be sometimes fun to unpack. And uh, certainly if you read anything by John Piper, you know that's a central theme in uh, much of his writing. But this idea of joy, I love uh, some of you maybe remember the late Irma Bombeck, the columnist. And uh, she told of an experience that she had when she went to church one time. She said a row or two in front of her sat a mother with a normal five-year-old. That means he was rambunctious, uh, which uh, means he couldn't sit still. And as he squirmed and looked over the pew at those behind him, he was smiling. And then Irma Bombeck said she heard the mother sternly whisper to her son, quit smiling, don't you know you're in church? Now we laugh at that, but sometimes that's, uh, that's the case. Worship should be a joyful celebration. Now, when we talk about worship, we need to say, okay, now how do we, where do we derive our understanding of what worship is as God's people, as the church? Well, we believe that you derive it from Scripture. We don't start with culture. We don't start with what is uh, in the entertainment area and say, okay, well, that's getting a lot of people, so let's figure out how we do church that kind of matches a Beyonce concert or Lady Gaga or something, you know. Uh, maybe I'll be suspended and come through the ceiling maybe to imitate that, okay. That would be a sight, um, but my wife wouldn't let me do that. Uh, but we begin, obviously, with the Bible. That's our... That's our a starting point. And if we begin with the Bible, obviously we are looking at all parts of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, there's quite a bit written about prayers and sacrifices and choirs and symbols and festivals and feasts and laws and all those things. But what we want to try to discern is what aspect of what the Old Testament teaches, how does that apply to New Covenant believers, and I'll talk about New Covenant. Many of you don't understand that term, but I'll refer to that a lot here. But how does what God taught in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, what relevancy is that, if any, into where we are at today, okay? And so when we look at the Bible, it's kind of talking about worship. Well, where in the Bible? Where do you start in the Bible? What parts of the Bible give us instruction concerning worship. And so one of the things that's important as students of the Word, and I trust that as a growing Christian, you're a student of the Bible, that's how we mature and grow, then we need to kind of understand the Bible timeline, understand 
what the Bible is, is, is teaching, where it is teaching, and where it is in God's storyline and theological development. That sounds really heady, doesn't it? But it's not that complicated. But how does the relevancy of what God did two, three, four thousand years ago, how does that fit into where we are today? So we just kind of want to unpack that a little bit, but tie it into us as a church that our priority when we gather together, that's the one of the first starting places, is that we gather to celebrate God. Again, we gather together. That's what this is. We gather together to glorify God, okay, through worship and to encourage one another. It's, it's, it's vertical and horizontal, and uh, we'll uh, unpack that a little bit in just a minute. But first of all, Let's just briefly consider gathered worship in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, we won't belabor this, but it just, it's important to kind of draw the picture as we move forward to our New Covenant uh, understanding today in the church. Now, you know that God, from the very beginning, designed and desired humankind for relationship with Him, Right? Uh, in Genesis 3.8, when uh, humankind, man and, and, and Adam and Eve, when they, when they disobeyed God, the Bible says that the Lord was, the, that Yahweh, God was walking in the cool of the day in the garden, and he said, where are you? It wasn't like, well, where are you? I can't find you. But it, but it just point that out is that their relationship had no barriers up until that point. God designed us to have relationship. Believe, this is so wild when you think about it. The God of the universe that spoke universes into existence by the sound of his voice desires to have a relationship with me. David would say things like, Lord, such thoughts are way beyond my brain. That God wants to have relationship with me and that God has uh, literally given of himself to ensure that relationship. So that was the design. Now, again, after God's people were banished from his presence in Genesis 3 because of sin and disobedience, whole, whole other area we don't have time to get into, God has been working and designing his purpose and plan at bringing us back to himself. Think about that. What did he say when mankind, humankind sinned in the garden? That he was going to bring forth a seed born of a woman. That's the first prophetic insight of a coming Messiah that God was, God already had a plan when things were at their darkest hour. Sometimes we think that when things are as bad as they, they can't get any badder. Let me tell you something. Not, God has never been trumped by any situation you and I have. He's always on the job. He's always got a purpose and a plan. And so uh, fast forward, Israel is in Egypt suffering in chains, and uh, he, he raises up Moses to go before Pharaoh, let my people go. But what is that all about? Is it just to rescue them, to free them from, from oppression? No. The Bible says in Exodus 3, again, some of these references, just listen. You maybe make a little note. Uh, when I, we put the uh, sermon on the website, I'll probably I'll just put a copy of my notes on there. So just relax, so you're not feeling uh, all over the place. But I will tell you this: 
Go ahead and now turn to Hebrews 10, because we're going to spend a little time in Hebrews 10 a little later. So I'll let you go ahead and uh, start turning to that. But what was his design? Just to show his power? No. What was he doing? He was fulfilling what he promised. He was actively engaged at seeking his people in order to bring them to himself. Listen to, just listen to Exodus 3.12. The Lord said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you, talking to Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please us to go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. What is God doing? He is calling forth his people out of bondage, out of Israel. Why? To the mountain in order to worship, to be with them, okay? That was part of God's design. He would say in Exodus 15, 13, in your unfailing love, will, your unfailing love will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. That's what God was doing. He would say in verse 17 of Exodus 15, you will bring them in. Listen to this promise. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place Lord, you made for your dwelling the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. God has called his people out of Egypt, not just to, just, just to kind of wander around, but he's calling them back to himself. So where is that dwelling place in the Old Testament? You remember God established the tabernacle as the place where he would meet with them. Fast forward to Exodus 29. Just listen. The Lord said in this, this design of the tabernacle, he said, Uh, The word says, so I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his sons to serve me as priests. So God has designed a place where an Old Testament tabernacle, he has designed a special class of priests that would ensure and guard the integrity and the process by which he will meet with them and worship. And he says, I will dwell. The Lord says, I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God. That's Old Testament. That's what he was doing. He desires relationship to be with his people and design it in such a way that worship is a priority of what happens in this relationship. So the goal of the whole Exodus, okay, save you the the movie. The goal of the whole Exodus was that God would dwell, he would live among his people And he did this by establishing a holy place, a tabernacle, and a priesthood that he appointed in order to facilitate that process. Now, let's move a little further. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is important. When God moved forward, he developed this even further. Sometimes we read the Old Testament. We read the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And we see laws. We see legalities. We see dietary laws. We see worship very specific modes of worship and bringing animal sacrifices, all those things. What did God do as he moved forward? He established a covenant with his people, and we call that the Mosaic Covenant. It just means the covenant he made with Moses as Moses was his representative. And in Exodus chapter 19, 
the Lord reminds the people that he's done what he's done for them in rescuing them. Why did he call them out of Egypt? He's rescued them from Egypt. And then he promises them that as they obey the terms of this covenant, this was a conditional covenant. This had things to say, if you do this, I will do this. That's different than what we learned about the Abrahamic covenant. That was an unconditional covenant. But this is the covenant he made with Moses. Listen to Exodus 19. The Lord says, through Moses to his people, he's making covenant. He's establishing the guidelines. He's establishing the fence by which he meets with an unholy people. God is holy. By which and how will he dwell among a among an unholy people. And he says, now if you obey me fully, if, and you keep my covenant, then out of all nations, he tells this rescued people now, you will be my treasured possession. That's what he tells his people that he's rescued out of Egypt. If you do this, you will be my treasured possession. But we're talking about the gathering. All right, what does that have to do with the gathering? It has to do with this is that God set the rules, God set the parameters. And if you read and study the Old Testament, you realize there were, there were uh, feasts and there were festivals that God had commanded that by which the people would gather together in the tabernacle. Later on, they gathered where? In the temple, right? Temple's not built yet. So God always had a meeting place. He always had a place established by which he would have this relationship. The, the difference is, is that it, the Israelites only gathered or came to the temple or the tabernacle in this time and the temple later only when they needed to offer a specific sacrifice for sin or impurity. It wasn't a constant dwelling together. Now, the Lord was very specific about them walking in holiness, about them walking in a pure life. And he gave all those various laws, like Deuteronomy 6. He said, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods and other uh, gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you and will destroy you from the face of the earth. That's old covenant. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal in this is that this, this idea of God having intimate worship with his people in the Old Covenant was restricted to a specific people, to a specific place, and specific times. That was the essence of the gathering. Okay, We're gathered. Their gathering was different than our gathering. But that was the Old Testament picture there. It was limited. It was, it was, it was designated a specific time. It was designed as a, in a specific place. God dwelled among his people. We read that, right? God dwelled among his people. But his presence, his presence was restricted to the tabernacle or to the temple, and it was guarded or maintained in how we had access to him by this priestly class, the, the Levites. You with me? All right? I'm already going to number two, so you can breathe. All right? Not complicated. All right? But it's important. Because the second aspect as we unpack 
this idea of worship is we need to understand the difference that Jesus has made. We are not in the Old Covenant. We are not in the Old Testament system. Jesus Christ has radically changed this relationship. The turning point in the storyline of Scripture is the birth of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything changed. God's promises, the Bible said, are fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the Old Testament types, T-Y-P-E-S. It means like pictures. It means, here's, here's a term we might understand. It's not biblical, but pictures and types of events in the Old Testament are previews of coming attractions. So when you think about the sacrifices, when you think about the feasts, the festivals, the days, Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, 27? Great verse. Look at it another time, but not now. Great verse. In fact, I, no, I can't say that. That is probably one of the most important verses. It's not that, but, but it is a hinge verse that if you want to understand the word of God, you've got to get this verse into your system. And I mean, what Jesus is unpacking around it. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus is resurrected. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. Comes along, there's a couple of disciples. We don't know if they're the part of the 12 or they're just, sometimes the Bible uses disciples to refer to the 12, and sometimes it's used to just refer to followers of Jesus, right? And he comes alongside them. He's resurrected, and he begins to ask them why they are so sad and downcast. And they begin to talk like, haven't you heard what's been going on? Where have you been? And the Bible says that that. As he talked with them, and as he talked and he explained, it says in verse 27 of Luke 24, Jesus, in this dialogue, says this, And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, and all the prophets, that's the remainder, it could read this way, Jesus opening up the Old Testament. That's what Moses and the prophets is shorthand of saying. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. New Testament wasn't even even written, wasn't even developed. He took Genesis and went all the way through Malachi and walked them through understanding how all these things in the Old Covenant pointed to him. Now, would you like to have a DVD of that? Better yet, wouldn't you like to have been there? So what does that tell us? That tells us that if we understand who Jesus is and what he's done, we're not discarding the old covenant. We're not discarding, discarding, uh, discarding the, the old system but we are seeing it now in a whole new light fulfilled in Christ. And that has to be foremost in our thinking. So in order to understand what the Bible teaches about worship, we've got to understand how Jesus not only fulfills but transforms the worship under the Old Covenant or the Mosaic system. For example, the tabernacle. 
And later the temple was where God manifested his presence among the people, right? Remember, we just got through saying that. That's where he met him. Jesus not only fulfills the tabernacle, but he replaces these old covenant structures. For example, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the Greek, that word dwelt means he tabernacled among us. What is the Holy Spirit through the writer of John doing? He is connecting that Jesus now, we don't worship at a location, at a temple, at a tabernacle, but Jesus himself is the dwelling place of God, his very person. Remember when Jesus said in John 2.20, and this got some of the leaders riled up, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Remember that? And they went crazy, right? They went crazy. They, 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 in fact, that was one of the indictments that they made against him uh, around his trial that he had threatened to destroy the temple. But Jesus goes on to explain what he was talking about where he said and referred to his body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says that later on after he was resurrected, the disciples would remember what he said when he said this very exact quote, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about brick and mortar. He was talking about his very life. But here's what we need to catch is he was connecting the old structure, the old picture of the temple or the tabernacle, and he was identifying and saying, I am that tabernacle. I am that temple. I am that dwelling place of the Most High God. We know that the Bible in Jeremiah 31, 33 makes the promise of what we understand today. I don't think they knew what he was talking about. But we understand Jeremiah 31, 33 as the promise that God would make a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. It's talking about future, way ahead. I will put my law in their minds and write my law on their... And I will be their God and they will be my people. God promised that. Fast forward, Jesus in John 14 said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or helper to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. How has God fulfilled that promise of Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three? of writing his law, writing his word, writing his mind and heart upon his people? Does he open them up and all of a sudden engraves little, you know, the Ten Commandments? No. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. He calls them the Spirit of truth. The Lord has fulfilled that promise. So what we need to understand is how Jesus has radically altered our concept of worship. We're not worshiping in Jerusalem. We're not worshiping through feasts and and sacrifices. Jesus himself is the sacrifice. Remember what Hebrews tells us? 
that he by himself offered one sacrifice? I had you turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Great chapter. That's why I just wanted you to zero in on that while we made this point. But if you look back in chapter 9 of Hebrews, if you want to understand how Jesus has radically changed the old covenant and brought in the new covenant, you need to study the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 13, and 14 reminds us that the blood of goats goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. You see, the Old Testament economy, the Old Testament covenant, did not, could not make anybody justified or clean before God. Remember, that's what Paul said in Galatians about the law. It was never intended to make us righteous. It was only there to reveal our unrighteousness. Okay, everybody with me? I know it's dark in here, and these lights drive me crazy. We'll just turn them all bright on. I'll I'll reverse these, turn them on you. But this is important. You want to catch this. Those things only covered temporarily the sins of God's people. That's why they had to continually go back time after time, year after year, and bring a sacrifice. In fact, the priest that was governing the whole process, he himself had to offer a sacrifice. Why? Because he had sinned. But then came Jesus. How much more? Say, how much more? How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, talking about Christ, unblemished to God, cleanse, not just cover, actually cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The whole essence of the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who were being drawn back into the old Jewish system. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling them time and time again is don't go back. Why? Because there ain't nothing there. It's a shell of what once was, but the reality is, is Christ. That's Paul's argument in Colossians 3 about those that are wanting to import Jewish rituals and all these different things. And he's saying, why are you doing that? Why are you, re, why are you trying to feel religious because you bring in some of, these symbol, some of these elements that were part of the old Jewish system? Why are you doing that when you have the reality of Jesus now with you? It's like going out to dinner with my wife, but I'm going to leave her at home and I'm going to have a framed picture that I'm going to set across from the table and we're just going to have a good time because that picture eats cheap. It'll be a, it'll be a cheap date. And hey, did you go to dinner with your wife? Well, kind of. I just sat there across from this picture and just admired her beauty. And Does that give me any point? No. That's silly. But that's Paul's argument when you read Colossians. 
why are you fixated on all these old Jewish rituals when they were nothing more than a carrier to bring the reality of Jesus? That's where we are at today. We are living in the reality of a new covenant where Jesus Christ has fulfilled all those requirements. He's our tabernacle. He's our temple. He is in, uh, his presence through the Spirit is in me. Look at, John, look at Hebrews 10. Trust me, this isn't going to be an eight-hour message. We're, we're circling the airport, okay? I'm not going to tell you what airport, but we're circling the airport, all right? Jacksonville, no. All right, look. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 1 through 4. I'm only going to hit a few things, but he- Hebrews 10 is a great chapter. If you read nothing else today, read Hebrews 10. Wonderful, wonderful truths. Verse 1, the law is only a what? A shadow, a type, a shadow of, a, of good things that are coming. That are, that's preview of coming attractions. They're not, the NIV says, not the reality themselves. Jesus is the reality. Down at verse 10. It says, we have been made holy. Notice this, past tense. We have been made holy. Say it. I am holy. Some of you just not sure you're going to go out on that limb yet but because uh, you kicked the dog on the way to church. But it says because of what Jesus has done, going back up to verse 3, those things that the priests did were just annual reminders. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But he says in verse 10, we have been made holy. How? Through keeping the law, eating the right foods, Maintaining the seventh-day Sabbath? No. We have been made holy through the death, the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's not a continual re-sacrificing. Jesus paid it all once for all. Verse 11, day after day, under the old system, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, notice what it says, which can never, never take away sin. But when this priest named Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? It says he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, He said, it is. Then why do we want to keep adding to something that God has finished? Why do we feel the need to continue to say, well, I I know, but I just feel so unworthy. Yeah, you are. I am too. That's the whole point. Jesus said it is finished. Where Jesus has put a a period, don't put a comma. Where Jesus has put a period, don't put a comma. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice he is made perfect forever. Notice this, this is really cool. By one sacrifice he is made perfect, okay? That means finished, done, complete, right? Done, right? Right? Made perfect, right? Yes. 
Come on, talk to me, or I'm going to preach longer. If you don't talk, I'm going to preach longer, okay? I'll just tell you that right up front. Made perfect, made perfect. It's perfect. But notice what it says, forever those who are being made whole. I'm perfect before him. And yet I'm walking in these new covenant promises. And notice we won't read it. But what is the, in verse 15, 16, in, uh, verse 15 and 16, the writer of Hebrews, what does he quote to tie in to these very truths? He ties in Jeremiah 31, 33 of God's promise of this new covenant that he will make. Here's the point. Because of this radical shift in how God relates to his people, the new covenant inaugurates, that is inaugurated by Jesus, makes the old one obsolete. So what does that have to do with me? And It means that now, right now, God's people have their sins forgiven. Right now, God's people experience his gracious presence through faith in Christ and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not temporary. It's not just for a select few. It's not a location. We have his presence with us, in us. And all God's people have immediate, intimate access to God. Prove it. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You're in Hebrews 10, look down at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, why is the writer doing this? So we have confidence in the finished work of Christ that we, that we are immersed in, that we live in right now. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You realize a Jew would never even contemplate entering the most holy place, let alone if they weren't even among the tribe of the Levites and part of that, sit, that, uh, that class of priests. I mean, it was inconceivable. But the writer of Hebrews says, based on everything that Jesus has done in fulfilling the covenantal promises of God, we can enter boldly with great confidence and we can call Yahweh Abba. Let us draw near to God, verse 22. Let us draw near to God. Some of you are scared of God. Born again, child of God, living under the wonderful blessings of all his promises, these new covenant truths, and yet you're scared to do what verse 22 says, to draw near to God. For God to reject you would be to reject himself. Draw near to God. So what does this have to do now with us as a church? Well, we don't worship the same way that they did in the Old Testament. Worship is not something that we go and do. Worship is something that we are based on our relationship with Christ. Notice how in New Covenant language, how the New Testament writers, Paul primarily 
uses Old Testament truths and relates them to New Testament living. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of, uh, mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Old Testament truth now seen through the paradigm of the new covenant. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Romans 12.1. Hebrews 13.15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. What's a sacrifice of praise? It's often when you don't want to do that. You're mad. You're irritated. I'm going to offer you a sacrifice of praise. I'm going to tell this body like Paul did. Remember he said, I buffet my body. Now, I know we think he says he buffets his body, but that's not the right pronunciation. That's a false doctrine that some of us Christians hold on to as our chief verse. But no, he said, I, I even uses the word I beat. In other words, I demand that my body is submitted to the spirit of God in me. My body controls touch, taste, smell here. It controls too much of my life. But the Holy Spirit in me can override that system. And that's what connects me and worships. But a lot of times I have to tell this body, you will respond. You will not speak bad words of anger. You will speak life. Because in the power of the tongue is what? Life and death. Sticks and stones may not break your bones, bones, but words do hurt you. I can recall something somebody said when I was four and a half like that. We don't go to sacred times and places. Listen to what Paul said. Don't you know that you yourselves, you yourselves, talking to the church, and not only just any church, he's talking to the church at Corinth. They were not a model church. And yet he tells the church at Corinth that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Be careful of writing off folk. Because even as believers, guess what? We're not always at our best. I am, but you, you aren't. So you needed to breathe, all right? 619 of 1 Corinthians, do you not know? He repeats it again. That your bodies, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, writing his law upon your heart. I'm adding that. Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. Paul would say in Ephesians 2 that you are being built up together to be the dwelling place of God where his spirit lives. So what is God doing in the church? What is worship in the church? We are God's dwelling place, not the building. Not the building. God's people, the ecclesia, the call out ones in the Greek ecclesia, we are God's people. We are his church. So what does that look like? In the New Testament, we're not offering sacrifices. We're not, we're not parading around in Jewish robes and all that nonsense that Christians fall into. I do not need a prayer shawl to put on my head to make my prayers more effective before the throne of God. I need one covering, and that's the blood of Christ. I don't need to wear a towel on my head to feel more spiritual. 
Does that mean we can't enjoy the history and the pictures and we're going to have a Seder supper and see the new covenant through all that? No, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about falling into this trap where we feel like we'll be more spiritual if we become more Jewish. If you're not a Jew, just stay Gentile, okay? You're okay. You're not going to be more spiritual if you don't eat pork. You might be healthier, but, you know, that's another argument. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? There's this mentality that is pervading in certain aspects of the church that we need to return back to our Jewish roots. No, we don't. We need to stay fixed in the new covenant of Christ. Why do I want to go back and live in a shell that was only a picture and a type when I have the reality of Jesus right now, right here? So the church gathers together to read and preach the word of God. Paul told Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. The church gathers together, Ephesians 5, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together. Listen to this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Listen to this. This is the church speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. It says speaking to one another. You can't do that sitting there and having church on the Internet. You can't fulfill the commands of the New Testament unless you are physically unable, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that says, well, I have my own church. No, you don't. No, you don't. There's no such thing. A church is a gathered people. Paul says to pray. The church is to pray. He said, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving may be made for all people, kings, authorities. He says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2, I love this, men, I want the men, I want the men everywhere to pray. Oh, if we would have men who would pray. Right, Robert Bohr? you're not sure why I did that, you ask Robert, and he'll be happy to enlighten you. If you're still in Hebrews 10, look at this. Of course, baptism, the Lord's table, communion, that's part of what the church does. But also the church, remember look at the, the picture, I've got the arrow going up. Of course, we worship and glorify God, but notice the, the, the lateral, right? Church gathering together Yes, is primarily to glorify God and worship, but also the Bible makes it clear that our gathering together is a necessity for us together being developed and maturing in Christ. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. One another. That's not solo Christianity. And then he ties how we do this by not giving up Meeting where? Together. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. David Mathis has written a great little book I'm working through, and it's, it's called Habits of the Heart. And it's wonderful because a lot of the books you read on developing personal disciplines in the Lord, this is very grace-filled, Habits of the Heart, David Mathis. Listen to this statement related to this, about the necessity of being together. He said, we must remember God has said it is not good for us to be alone. We were not made to stand solo. 
Even in times as troubling as Elijah's, God gave him 7,000 who hadn't abandoned the truth. God made us for community and named her the church. And being part of this great local and global community plays an important role in assuring us, listen to this, being part of this great local and global community plays an important role in assuring us not only that we are not deceiving ourselves in pretending our profession is credible, but also that we truly know whom we have believed. What's he saying there? Is that, you know what? If I just live with me, myself, and I, I can convince myself on a lot of stuff. I'm always right. I never, be, never need to be corrected. And you know what? When I'm by myself, if I did that, you know what? And I'm going off in a whole no- I'm getting off at some exit that's going into no man's land spiritually. Guess what? I'm by myself. Who's going who's gonna... to? When we're in the community, we are made for one another to develop and mature one another and also to protect one another. And I will say this, a person who does not commit themselves to the body of Christ needs to consider their pride, their arrogance, as feeling as if, I don't need anybody. I can do this all by myself. I need you. I need you. Sherry, why don't you go ahead and come? Instead of meeting a few times a year, we gather to worship every Lord's Day. Why did they gather on the Lord's Day? Jews, Jews who met on the seventh day, started meeting on another day. How does that? Only something as radical as the resurrection of Christ could take these Orthodox Jews and actually cause them to begin worshiping on another day that was fixated in the Old Covenant under the Fourth Commandment. But if you read Hebrews 4, you will see that Jesus himself fulfilled the Sabbath rest. You can't get away from this. It's Jesus all the way around. But these Jewish disciples began to gather together Does that mean they probably didn't meet with their friends on the Sunday? Yeah. But as Christians in the church, they began to gather together on the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? What was such a big deal that happened on the first day of the week? Yeah. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Pretty big deal. And they said, when we gather to celebrate, we are celebrating our high priest seated at the right hand of the Father who by himself has made it possible for me to be in God's forever family. Without shame, without blemish, I am cleansed, I am pure, I am made perfect. How? Because of him.